Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gura here with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, everybody. It's a Thursday, the 27th of October, and a lot of news suffice to say this morning. Let's tick through some of it. Twitter. Expected to release third quarter earnings this morning at 7 o'clock Wall Street time. We'll bring you those numbers as they cross the Bloomberg. And I want to bring in Paul Sweeney. He's the head of North American Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, a lot to talk about here, but give us uh, what you're going to be keeping an eye on here when the numbers cross. Well, I think for Twitter, it's um, just a question of is there any evidence whatsoever that Jack Dorsey has been able to find the secret sauce that will try to reinvigorate the user growth at the company, which could give investors some lifeline to kind of hang on to to see about uh, whether there will be any kind of revenue growth in the future for this company. Uh, really, over the last uh, several quarters, we haven't seen any ev- evidence that they've been able to uh, find a product fix, a, a technology fix, a marketing fix uh, that can reignite uh, user growth there. And so uh, the really question is, if they can't do that, uh, what does the company do? It just went through a round of M&A speculation, and a lot of the potential buyers walked away. So investors are really left with, you know, what, what do I do with this name? All right, those numbers crossing the Bloomberg now. Looking at third quarter revenues, $616 million, third quarter adjusted earnings per share, 13 cents. The estimate was nine cents. And uh, an announcement here that Twitter is cutting up to nine percent of jobs. We'll continue to go through those uh, those numbers here. You as, know, as there's one statistic here, David, that just sticks out. And Paul Sweeney, advertising revenue, an increase of six percent year over year. Yeah. Is Twitter an industrial company? Yeah, I was going to say that that kind of sounds like a radio uh, company or a TV company. <laughs> yeah, know. Uh, you know, we're used to seeing, you know, if you think about it, uh, Internet advertising in general is growing about 15 to 20 percent. Advertising on social media is growing upwards of 30 percent. Exactly. And so you see numbers coming out across Facebook and Snapchat just put out some more numbers uh, in terms of uh, and they're putting up some huge numbers. So when you see a six percent number out of Twitter, that just it really tells the story. What is uh, what's been the the fallout from Twitter putting itself up on the block and and having all the suitors walk away here? What's what's the what's the company's next step in in light of that happening? Yeah, the, that was extraordinarily disappointing for them. I mean, they actually kind of engaged in the process a little bit. They hired some advisors. Um, they kind of put out a little bit of a process out there, so a number of of players were able to look at it. So it was clearly, from their perspective, disappointing. Uh, that that no one really stepped up here. It's interesting when Salesforce.com was reported to be the the leading bidder, their stock uh, yeah. uh, sank dramatically, and a lot of their very big investors went right to the CEO and said, "This is not a transaction yeah. we want you to do." Up six percent uh, right now in very early trading. Paul Sweeney, there's a sentence in here which goes to your decades of experience. In light of the reorganization of the company Salesforce, the company is not providing specific revenue guidance for the fourth quarter and for the full year 2016. How does the sell side guy do his job if he's not getting top of line guidance? Well, they're going to have to go back and do some uh, roll up the sleeves and try to figure out what's going on here. And I suspect that you're going to see estimates come down on the street. Uh, typically, analysts will take the most conservative yep. view they can. Um, and you know, so that, and again, it's 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 not so much about the numbers for this company. Almost at, at this point, um, I think the next 
you know, question for in, investors and, and, and for management is there is there a price, any price that you will sell this company? And I think when the initial round of M&A speculation came around, the stock was much higher level. Um, and, the, you know, it could have been a $20 billion price tag to get this company. Uh, now the stock is down around $12 billion in terms of equity valuation. Um, and so I think at some point uh, there may be a buyer here simply because there aren't that many social media platforms out there uh, that are up and running uh, and that have the impact that Twitter does, in fact, have in the marketplace. Uh, so I think <clears throat> at some price uh, this will be of interest to yeah. either a tech buyer like a Google uh, or, you know, a, well, a, some, somebody else. Color for us the hype and hyperbole which you and your team measure every day with the fact that this company makes 28 cents on the dollar, adjusted EBITDA margin off of gap revenue to be somewhere in the vicinity of 27, 28%. A lot of our listeners are going, wait a minute, these guys are coining money, Amazon isn't. Why is Twitter dog of dogs? It's uh, yeah, simply uh, this is a tech company, and if you're a tech investor, uh, you're looking for top line growth. It's as simple as that. And and uh, most tech investors feel like uh, we can grow our way into profitability. What we're looking for and what we're paying for is unit growth, mm-hmm. um, and it's top line revenue growth. And so and you know. Uh, Twitter had this coming out of the IPO, and we saw the stock trade well. Facebook still has it. Google still has it. Amazon yeah. still has it. But uh, this is a well, name that's kind of run out of steam. Paul, Qualcomm, money's cheap. I think if I add $80 billion and $50 billion, I get over a tenth of a trillion dollars, just two big mergers. I, I, I mean, it, it's just chasing uh, the low interest rates. The money's here. Let's go. Let's go to year end, isn't it? Yeah, I think you know this Qualcomm deal, the AT&T, Time Warner deal. It's interesting here. I think the, the, these are real transactions. These are strategic t- transactions. Uh, you know, in the case of AT&T, really recognizing that they need to put a, a content uh, pipe in, into their distribution system. And I think in the case of Qualcomm, they're looking for distribution away from the phone market. So these are strategic-driven tra- transactions. But you're right. They are absolutely fueled in very large part by the low cost of capital. In the case of AT&T, uh, half of that transaction will be funded by debt. And, you know, it's just amazing that J.P. Morgan and Bank of America Merrill Lynch stepped up with a $40 billion bridge loan, uh, the biggest uh, to be done in the marketplace. Uh, so they feel very confident that they can refinance that. How do that they into make the, money on that? That's, uh, you know, the bridge loans carry very big fees because they are, the banks are assuming a lot of market risk. Uh, so they will get paid on on the fees on the bridge loan. Plus, you know, they will be part of the uh, the group that will underwrite the bonds that will put in more permanent financing to take so out the bridge. On. In the old days, it was a 6% business. So you made 6% on what and 6% of 40 gazillions, a lot of money. It's not six. But it's still. Do they, do they make a stick in the parlance? Do they make 1%? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what fees are going to get here, but they, these are very profitable uh, instruments for the banks. When they step up and put capital, they absolutely will get paid for it, uh, particularly now that they have to put so much capital aside on their balance sheet from a regulatory perspective. So they will certainly price their capital accordingly, and, and these are still very uh, attractive deals for the banks but because they are assuming a lot of risk here in the case of JP Morgan and B of A. But you know, they will also make fees on the back end by. Uh, Doing going to the bond market and taking out this this bridge. So Paul, not a, not a whole lot of room here for consolidation in the social media space, as you say. Uh, same thing holds true in the semiconductor space, isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, Anand Srinivasan, who covers semis for us, has been extraordinarily busy over the past couple of years. It's just been a tremendous amount of consolidation in that space. 
Um, so, you know, again, a, a lot of strategic driven tra transactions here. It's not just because of cheap money. Um, so you, when, when, you, when you start to see the private equity players come into the marketplace, uh, that's when you know that these are more financially driven deals versus strategic. Real quick here, Snap announcing it's going public uh, yesterday, the, the, the parent company of Snapchat. Uh, yeah. Why now and, and what do you make of the numbers? Yeah, it's, uh, the numbers over that we're seeing, uh, you know, there's not a lot of public numbers out on Snapchat, but what we've seen are just some extraordinary growth <laughs> rates in terms of, you know, the kind of the metrics that investors are used to seeing from these social sites, uh, user growth, daily user growth, mobile user growth, uh, and then top line advertising. So the valuations that Bloomberg News reported yesterday of 25 to $35 billion, huge valuations because their last private round, I think about six months ago, valued the company at $18 billion. Mm -hmm. So again, the valuation numbers in Silicon Valley, if you still are putting up the top line growth, uh, you can get the valuation. You work in a strange world. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Mr. Graham yeah. and Mr. Dodd and Mr. Cottle wouldn't know this world. Yeah, they, they, I don't think they were aware of, you know, kind of the capital that would be uh, amassed yeah. at in Silicon Valley uh, searching for the next big they thing. They wouldn't be snapping. Yeah, right. and I noticed <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rubenstein over at Carlisle Group looking for another raise here, as they say. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. It's brilliant here with Twitter. David Gurr, it's great to have Seth Masters with us with AB Alliance Bernstein. Uh, in, the, in the idea that we've been talking about yields and yield dynamics into 2017, and it, it's an interesting linkage of everything we talk about in economics and over into foreign exchange and over almost into our politics as well. Absolutely, Seth. Looking at your most recent note, a line stood out to me. You said you've got to have uh, only the bond exposure you need, nothing more. Uh, easier said than done. That's a pretty difficult thing to figure out. It really is. And of course, it very much depends on exactly what your objectives might be. I think the problem is in the past, it wasn't such a sensitive variable. You could afford to take a little bit more exposure in things that were safe, especially in bonds, and still get a reasonable yield and not have to worry a lot about risk. But today, having too much in bonds can be a big risk for people, both because the yields are so low, you're not getting a lot there, and because with interest rates likely to rise over the next several years, you have price risk too. Looking at these super long-term bonds, 50-year bonds in Italy, 100-year bonds in, in Spain, what do you make of that? Is that trend going to, to continue? Well, I think those issuers are selling those bonds now because they can. Yes. And from their perspective, it's rational. The, the question is the buyers and why are they doing this? I think in some cases, they're institutions that are trying to lock in a long-term asset to match a long-term liability, or at least that's what their, their, their intention is. The, the risk that this creates for everybody else is that those issues go into the indices. And now, if, you're, if you buy a, a bond ETF, you're getting a decent amount of exposure to very, very long duration. The duration of all of the bond indices has been creeping up over the last few years, especially outside the US, but here in the US too. At a time when we would say it actually makes sense to be on the shorter side a little bit of the duration spectrum. So we think that this is a great example of why you don't necessarily, as an investor, necessarily benefit just from being passive. Just looking at the, the, the bond space overall, going into the ECB meeting last week, there was a lot of talk of bond scarcity. How's that playing out uh, in your world? Well, I think the, the, the fact that there is bond scarcity in some parts of the world where central banks are buying up, literally vacuuming up almost everything that there is, in especially the, the Eurozone and, uh, and in Japan, that, that's one of the reasons why yields have remained so incredibly low. There are also, I think, some investors who are still much more worried about deflation mm -hmm. risk than inflation risk. But 
when the sentiment changes, I think that we will start to see a shift in the investor behavior. And we know that many of the central banks are now trying to figure out how to extra extricate themselves mm -hmm. from this posture. And what's interesting here, Seth, is, is not only the great bear, uh, bull market and bonds price up, yield down, and the extraordinary years of 09 and 12, and certainly this year looks to be the same. You look at where bonds are returning, just looking at one major bond index up 13% from the Lehman bottom, or you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Index, you know, the old Lehman uh, index. I mean, most people don't realize the bull market in bonds is equivalent or superior to the bull market in equities. Right. Well, the, the total returns, of course, aren't as high as the bull market in equities. But then again, you wouldn't expect that. But you're absolutely right. In terms of its how unusual it is, um, it is extremely unusual. And it's been going on for a very long time. It's mm. been, if you really think about it, it's been about a 35-year bull market. And it's mathematically impossible for it to continue because okay. it, the interest rates are so low. What is your advice to an institutional portfolio? Forget about our retail clients and our retail listeners who are in financial repression, what do the pros do? Do they buy dividend-paying stocks, preferreds? Well, I think that they, that's what they have been doing, and that's a trap. Because here's the problem. If you buy a stock because it has yield, that means you're buying a bond-like stock that tends to have more inflation, interest rate sensitivity than the average stock. And I totally understand why people might do that, because the yield on stocks today is higher than the yield on most bonds. And there are many stocks that have yields that are in the 4 4.5% range. But the problem you will have is when, in fact, interest rates begin to move up, those are the stocks that will be most at risk. And here's the way to think about that. Um, in general, stocks have to be sensitive to interest rates because the interest rate is essentially the way you discount future cash flows from any investment. So. In the case of a stock that is mostly trading on its earnings and how much you value those earnings, that effect is significant but not determinative. If a stock is trading on its yield, though, how much of those earnings right. are paid out, then it's all about what that interest rate is. And if the interest rate moves even a slight bit up, many of these yield-oriented right. stocks will get crushed. Mm. Seth, thank you so much. Seth Masters with AB this morning. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Uh, David, bring in Ira Jersey. He helps us out uh, pretty much every six weeks or so with our Fed show on interest rate dynamics. That's coming up, by the way, we should say. Yeah, there, there's we, a meeting on the horizon, right? Yeah, they have a, I don't go to, they won't let me go to the meeting. Oh, there's a meeting, <laughs> but Bloomberg doesn't let me go to the, the meeting meetings to get ready for the show. No, we, you know, it's, it's they more keep fun me if as it's far a away surprise. as it Keep can. the spontaneity yeah. up. Anyways, Ira Jersey is here. He's a portfolio manager at Oppenheimer Funds. As you say, we talked to him a lot about uh, U.S. Treasuries. He's going to talk about Brazil a little bit today. I'm excited to, to hear your thoughts on, on that as well. Actually, let's let's start there. Yeah, that's good. Let's look, look at emerging markets. Um, 
we, we've had a, a change of power here. We have an interim president, Michelle Temer, saying he's not going to run in, in 2018. Uh, there's been the political crisis. Wait, they, they say that now. You they say that know. now. I was going to say. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens there. But uh, he's made a lot of promises about cleaning things up, and there's a, a lot of cleaning up to do. Are you optimistic that that's going to happen uh, down in Brasilia? Yeah, yeah we are. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we look at when we look at the politics of the situation is what's the likelihood that you're going to have a friendlier Congress where they're going to be able to get their fiscal house in order. Um, there is there is some optimism that, that that's going to happen. Some of the promises that were made might be a little bit of a stretch, but if they can get most of the way there, then that's very positive for them. Um, and, and, you know, from a bond market's <laughs> perspective, it's things like what's going on with inflation? Inflation's coming down there. It, what's going on with bond issuance? Will they be able to actually hit their fiscal targets? We think they'll come close. Um, so, so all of those things make the environment for buying bonds that are still trading at double digits um, pretty pretty attractive. Now, it's not for the faint of heart. You don't want to, you know, jump in with both feet. Um, so you need to manage risks and, and make it part of a larger portfolio, um, which is, uh, you know, diversified, um, uh, broadly speaking. But but we do like Brazil, and we do think that, uh, you know, we're overweight in both our emerging markets, local debt fund, and our uh, and our international bond fund. Well, let's return to the interimness of, of this presidency. As an investor, does that make things easier or harder? If, if this guy is able to right the ship, knowing that he's going to be out in 2018, doesn't that introduce some some new uncertainty? Yeah, it, it does because you don't know necessarily who's going to be the next uh, who's going to be the next leader. There's no heir apparent necessarily. So so we watch those things, but you know it is it is the election's two years away, so we're still looking for at least a little bit of stability in the interim. And like I said before, you know you never know if all of a sudden he becomes very popular, there is the possibility that. There could be a, um, you know, the, the, we could know at least one candidate who might run for uh, run for office, and and quite frankly, it's you know, will we see stability in places like Congress? Is corruption over in Brazil? You know, it's it's hard to know that without being in the inner workings. But but at least there's some positives. So, you know, one of the things that we've always liked about Brazil is that the governmental institutions continue to be a positive and they continue to operate the way you're supposed to. I mean, you don't have a, a president, you know, the, the Justice Department um, going after a sitting president with weak institutions. So because there's strong institutions, we think that Brazil is likely to get through this in a decent order. You mentioned inflation. What else uh, are central bank policymakers wrestling with in, in Brazil right now? Well, it, well, b both growth and inflation. You know, one of the one of the issues that they had for a while, and one of the reasons why they had been hiking interest rates was to try and fight inflation and get inflation down, and to try and make sure that the real, which really their currency, the the Brazilian real, was the, kind of the big stabilizer, and and really was the instrument that was hard hardest hit by the politics of Brazil. Um, you know, now that you have a situation where the politics is over, now the central bank can focus more on growth and inflation. Inflation's coming down. Inflation was double digits. It's likely to be, you know, highish single digits now, but um, but that means that you've already had one rate cut and you're likely to get more, and that should bring interest rates lower. How do you? And this is so great with your experience at Credit Suisse, and now you're over with the good international people at Oppenheimer Funds. How does an investor know that his manager is managing the currency risk? If you look at the Brazilian equity markets. It's stunning the difference if you're in Brazil, real, or in U.S. dollar. It's stark. 
Yeah, so so you know that's a, that's a choice and a preference. Um, you know, there there are um, some investors who fully hedge their portfolios, other investors who don't. Um, in our um, in our international bond fund, we actively manage our currency exposure. So um, we say, okay, what is the dollar cycle? So we first look, okay, what's the dollar broadly doing? And then if we think that the dollar is going to be appreciating against most currencies, as it as it quite frankly has for the last couple of years. Um, then we say, okay, well, which currencies are likely to do the best and worst? Because one of the things about currencies in particular is that it's a relative game. Uh, you know, you can say, oh, the dollar is going to do great, but then, you know, I'm, you know, this might be that one currency out there that actually does better than uh, mm-hmm. against the dollar. So, so you need to make sure that you do your homework, that you look at every country, you look at all of the crosses, you look at, you know, how um, not only is is the U.S. faring, but how are the our counterparties faring? Um, so, you know, how is Europe doing visa? Of the U.S., you know, and and with currencies, a, a big theme had been for a long time this policy divergence idea, where the Fed would be hiking, and the Bank of Japan and a lot of other central banks would be easing monetary policy, and and that's kind of fallen a little bit by the wayside, which is a reason why you've seen some stability actually in currency markets for uh, for the last uh, six months or so after after the dollar was very weak in the first quarter. There was so much exuberance surrounding Argentina's return to, to the bond markets. Do you do you share that? Uh, are, are you excited about the, the prospects in Argentina? Well, there's so certainly things in Argentina have improved quite a lot. I think one of the you know one of the things that we're looking at is how much issuances are going to be out of not only the sovereign but out of uh, out of the municipalities and and out of um, a lot of other government institutions there. And and we're so we're a little bit worried on the supply side. Um, you, you know, one of the things that is is that you can say. Fundamentally, we like it. Um, you know, we the technicals might be a little challenged. The question is, where are things priced? Are things priced for a heavy supply load, or are they not? And you know, what's gone on in Argentina lately with with spreads acting the way they have is we don't think it's you know all of the risks are exactly priced in. So there are, there are and probably will be some opportunities, but we're we're using more caution in a place like Argentina, somewhat more so now than we uh, are in Brazil. Bring us back to our next section mm. on the United States. Uh, we've been sort of devoid of the dot go s- silliness. <laughs> I mean, any chance this November meeting when we visit with you, is there any chance we get the mother of all surprises? I, I don't think so. Um, certainly the market doesn't think so. We're pricing in basically you know, cl- as close mm. to a 0% chance as the market ever prices in for such things. Um, it, you know, the modus operandi of this particular Fed is not the surprise markets. You know, one of the Janet Yellen's things is when she was the chair of their communications committee uh, for the uh, for the Board of Governors was, look, we want to give the market as much information as we can. They, it, you know, in some ways, it's probably too much information um, because it's con- it's confused and muddled the uh, um, you know muddled the message somewhat. I think, but um, but. The chances next. What's important about next week is how do they change the statement in their own nuanced way that they always do to prepare us for what might be coming in December. So do they do they upgrade their assessment of the economy? Do they continue on the exact same path, which probably means that they hike in December? At least I think so. Um, or do they do they downgrade the economy and say, hey, some of the data has been a little bit a uh, little bit concerning. Um, so so it's that little bit of nuance that the markets are going to latch on to, and you know there'll be you know one sentence one phrase in there that can uh, that can change uh, market perceptions quite a lot. Hi. Here we go again. Exactly. Like. <laughs> That's why it's every six weeks. <laughs> it's the first time Ira Jar- Jersey's ever been with us for a dead meeting. There I you mean, go. This whole oh, live meeting exactly, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's crazy. But we'll do that. We're looking forward to it. Michael McKee will be in Washington giving us 
uh, perspective. And, and I think and no, the, no news conference, we should say. Yeah, no, no news, news conference. But but I would say to everyone, where whatever you're doing that afternoon of uh, was November second, right? Uh, I would pay attention. I, I just never. I, I've been burnt badly not paying attention. Uh-huh to Fed meetings. So I, I, I really do look forward to it. Ira, one of the things we talked to Seth Masters of AB about this earlier is the idea of longer duration. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so desperate that the new five years is seven, the new 10 years is 12 or 15, and critically, the new 30-year piece is, in the case of Austria, is 70 years. That must end ugly. It did for Napoleon. <laughs> I'm going to suggest maybe it will for us as well. Well, I, so I think the the underappreciated risk, particularly by individual investors, is how much duration risk is out there. Um, so to your point, like a 70-year bond actually doesn't have that much more duration risk than a 30-year bond. And you say, well, how can that be? It's a it's one of the one of the magics of bond math. But at the end of the day, um, the fact that you have a lot more people buying longer uh, maturity assets and therefore longer duration assets, they're taking more more interest rate risk. So when you buy a 10-year bond and interest rates go up 1%, you can lose about 9% of your money. If you buy a 30-year bond, it's more than double that. So you're, you know, you really take a whole lot of interest rate risk when you are buying these longer duration assets. But, but basically, the you know central banks are forcing you to do that because if you're yield hungry at all and you want some income from a fixed income investment, you need to go yeah. out that far to find positive yields in many countries. That was beautifully explained. Why well, we love to have you on, but the the distinction there is because we're so yield hungry. When new bonds are issued that are longer maturity bonds, the yield is much lower than it should be, mm. right? Well, because demand is so strong and high for them. And that's and, and when you say should be, you know, we have all kinds of models. We say, okay, you know, nominal GDP should be where your 10-year uh, bond should be, which means that we're still probably somewhere like 100 basis points or 150 basis points rich. My model says we're closer to 40 basis points rich on the 10-year. So, um, you know, not not so so crazy far away but but regardless the the fact is is that supply demand dynamics are such that you know you you wind up having this this insatiable thirst for any yield anywhere when you know when i i always use the wb function on bloomberg every morning just to say hey you know wh- wh- how have things moved overnight and when you look at the united kingdom with their 10 year yield at 1.22% and then you go down and you say if you're in germany it's now 14 basis points it's zero 0.14%. That's not very exciting. So you have to go to 30 years if you want any yield in euro or take more more risk like by buying a peripheral bond like like Spain or Portugal. Ira Bloomberg dollar spot here 98 580. The, the the strong dollar, how long is it going to continue? Well, uh, so so we think that the, the dollar might have one more run up um, as the market prices for a few more Fed hikes. Um, but but generally speaking, we think we've probably seen the end. We've probably seen the dollar highs uh, in general. Um, so we're looking for the dollar to, to turn. You know, if, if, if the world had played out exactly to our forecast from a year ago, uh, we thought that the dollar would have turned already because we'd have some central banks that actually, instead of easing would be um, on hold and maybe the next move would actually be tightening. So um, so, so we think we're nearing the end. We're probably at, at a plateau here, so we don't expect mm-hmm. a whole lot from the dollar generally over the near term. Very quickly, Cleveland Fed, service sector 3.2%. Cleveland Fed is a core, uh, a curving up on a, on a log Y axis. It's quadratic. There's some acceleration to non-goods 
inflation. Has that changed the dialogue in the next six months? So, so services inflation was the, one of the things that that was lagging for a long time. It's during, not now, and and now you have services inflation picking up, and and that can be more sustainable. And given that we are a services based economy, we think it will. If you look at core inflation, so you look at whether it's it's the the Fed's uh, preferred measure, the core uh, mm. PCE deflator, or the uh, or core CPI, you're looking at at things that are close to the Fed's target. Now, the question is, in, in this, you know, Yellen's optimal control environment, do how long do they run that higher than their 2% target before they say, hey, we need to hike a little bit faster than we have been? Um, they're willing to do it a little bit more, um, but uh, but it's mm-hmm. going to take some time. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for the Oppenheimer Funds. Look forward to seeing you here in a number of days. Uh, with the dead meeting. It'll be a live show. <laughs> a live dead meeting show, dead meeting. Of November. <laughs> David Gurrow, this is a really important thing in economics and it's old world, new world. There's level and there's growth rate. Mm. And as a general statement, old world, England, Europe, are much more better at level analysis than the U.S., which looks at the rate of change for a second derivative, et cetera, et cetera. Ken Seta lives in the same world in equity research with Evercore. And Ken, good morning. And what I look at is when I look at the level of Twitter profitability, anybody would say, just shut up and buy it. (laughs) But the rate of growth of core revenue build, and I compare it to Facebook April up 57%, something like that. And that number today just stunned me, up 6%. Twitter's basically a no-growth entity, isn't it? Right, and I think if you look at the North America ad growth, it actually declined 2%. So a lot of the growth is coming from international advertising, um, which is a smaller base, um, as well as some of their licensing fees and other decline. May I suggest, and I think everybody knows I'm a hardcore Twitter user, you flood the thing with ads like everybody else, and then you get clowns like me to pony up an annual subscription to make the ads go away. Is that the dumbest <laughs> thing? Is that the dumbest uh, thing since sliced bread? Uh, yeah, I think that would be tough because I think that what would happen is you'd leave an opportunity for you know Facebook and others who are trying to do more in the area of broadcast to say, just come over here, there's no ads, right? And there's no subscription price. Jack Dorsey on the call a few minutes ago saying it's his goal to get to gap profitability in 2017. From what we've seen today, from what we've seen of this company here over the last few quarters, how, how likely is that to happen, do you think? Um, I, I think it's I, – I do think it's, it's, it's likely. Um, they announced a 9% restructuring um, and basically saying that they're going to narrow the number of sales channels from three down to two. Now, maybe that sounds a bit like Yahoo in kind of you know past years, but um, – uh, I think Anthony is bringing the experience that he has, you know, from Goldman Sachs and looking at this business and saying, okay, right now it doesn't look very expensive on the basis of of revenues, right, as as a multiple, but it does look very expensive when you're talking about earnings, um, particularly because of the stock-based comp that's involved. So I think, um, you know, part of them going through this process to drive that profitability, I think would potentially make Twitter more attractive to a potential suitor. You bring up Anthony Noto, chief financial officer at Twitter. When you're looking at the, the management of Twitter right now, he's playing an outsized role here. Of course, uh, Jack Dorsey doing a number of things at once. But uh, Anthony Noto here is, is really driving a lot of the changes at Twitter. 
Um, maybe from a, from a uh, you know from an operational standpoint, but I think in terms of the vision, uh, I think Jack is still very involved. He talked a lot on this call about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and how they're applying it to notifications and home timeline, and, and ultimately the onboarding and dissemination of tweets. Um, you know, they they cited right. that as a reason why you know their their daily active user growth has been able to accelerate over the last three quarters. Um, and, and, and to Tom, your point, you know, that's what ultimately would also help drive better click-through rate and performance of the ads and ultimately drive what advertisers, advertisers are willing to pay for that traffic. I mean, just ideas of bolt-on, folks. Google, $80, $80 billion of revenue versus $3 billion of Twitter if you're rounding conveniently. Help me here, Mr. Senna, with a, a very sensitive issue, which is a lot of people really upset with a Tumblr-like porn, light porn, stuff we really don't want to see, et cetera, et cetera. What's Mr. Dorsey going to do about it? I've heard a lot about that from people in the last six months. Um, and it's seeing that flow into Twitter, you're saying. Yeah. Right? I, I think it's happened there's, to Tumblr. Yeah. I mean, they, they spent some time on the call talking about safety as being a, a very important priority for them. And, um, and they said to basically stay tuned. By the next quarter, you're going to hear new measures that they're rolling out to address okay. some of that. And I'm sure that will be included. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, it certainly didn't help Tumblr um, when Tumblr was looking to be sold. And, um, you know, I think it, you know, Yahoo still, still took the chance. Um, but, um, but I think it is still an yeah. issue for Yahoo. Yeah. State why I'm going to pick on Google. Why Google would buy Twitter? I mean, it's a, it's an inconsequential bolt on, except in certain industries like what David and I do, we're addicted to it. Well, I think you know Google would likely face certain um, antitrust hurdles because you're you're talking about a very large ad platform. Even though it doesn't really compare to Google in scale, you know you know once you after Google and Facebook, you know everyone sort of drops down in scale quite a bit. Um, Plus, you could argue that Twitter is, in some respects, a search engine because of the real-time nature of it. Uh, I, I think, though, the, the messaging aspect is you know, broadcasting, messaging. All of those are sort of hard businesses to sort of just break into. And I think Google has tried many times and has had kind of you know, yeah. limited success. So if you know, Twitter is very well known, you, listen, you, know, you watch the elections and people are talking about Facebook and Twitter, Facebook and Twitter, right? To have Google... Um, essentially have one of those two tools where people are essentially coming together and understanding the content all around them um, would be a good thing for, for Google. Um, can, I just think that there's a question about price and ultimately, you know, a, a regulatory. Ken, your background is in media. Let me take advantage of that to, to ask you for your reaction to the AT&T Time Warner deal, how much sense that makes, what it says about the, the media environment right now. Um, it's interesting. It's um, yeah, when I worked, I worked at Time Warner years ago during, when they announced the AOL Time Warner merger. Um, and you know, and I, I think as you kind of fast forward um, to today, um, definitely the the industry is changing, and I think it does require a combination of content and distribution heft um, together, and to try and create an experience for users that is less complicated, um, you know, less cluttered with you know different packages that you have to buy, et cetera. You just want a clean login. You watch the show that you want to watch, when you want to watch it, et cetera. I'm just not sure that that combination will change all that much, you know, given probably the concessions that need to make, be made from a regulatory standpoint for it to go through, and ultimately right. just even the commercial agreements that are in place um, that would mean that you probably right. have years before you can en enact really any 
real change for the consumer. Uh, Ken Senna, let's go to Arbitrage 101. Mr. Altman would like you to speak about that this morning. Can you acquire shares in t- Twitter for the takeout? Um, I can't, no. You can, uh, I'm restricted. No. no, I know. you're. Oh, come on, Ken. You're restricted from everything, <laughs> including from Cubs everything. Indians. But <laughs> should our audience acquire shares at this giveaway price pending uh-huh. an acquisition managed by Evercore? Oh well, uh, I, you know, it's difficult for us to speak on the the acquisition element, you know, specifically. But I would say that coming out of this call and looking at those results, they do feel improved versus the prior two quarters that we've yeah. seen. Um, even though you are seeing improvement off sort of a lower expectation base. That, that was a so, fabulous – no, you don't have to say any more, Ken Senna. Your general counsel was standing <laughs> over your left shoulder while you answered that. <laughs> you did a really good job. Thank you. Folks, I was busting Ken's chops because there's a lot of delicacies in the business about what a securities analyst can and cannot say. Did we do a good job there, Yeah, David? John Tucker, our compliance Ken Senna officer with, over here. with Evercore on Twitter. That <laughs> was really interesting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.